brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, it sounds as it's read as though Mary's tone of voice may have carried a measure of criticism. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha knew something of Jesus' power. Martha knew that Jesus was able to raise from the dead, was able to heal, was able to prevent grief, this grief from falling upon her and her sister and their family. Martha knew that Jesus could have prevented all of this and chose not to. There sounds, isn't there, a bit of a critique there. I know if you had been here, but you weren't here. You didn't come. We called, but you didn't answer. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you deal with this problem? Why didn't you prevent this grief from gripping our hearts and destroying our days and plunging us into such sorrow? It even now says, Martha, even now, I know that wherever or whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha has remarkable confidence in Jesus, confidence in his ability to prevent Lazarus from dying from whatever illness it was that he suffered from. Martha knew that Jesus was strong enough to address that problem, to speak a word and banish that illness. She had seen him do it. She had heard of his doing it in so many other circumstances. Everyone had. So she knew Jesus was able to do it. She knew that Jesus could even raise Lazarus from the dead. Oh yes, Martha knew that Jesus was great, powerful, and mighty, that he was awesome in his ability to bless his people. But Martha wasn't really clear on who Jesus was. Martha knew what Jesus could do, but she didn't really understand who Jesus was. Notice how Jesus' response to her, especially when Martha says, oh, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection, is to say, no, 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 I am the resurrection. I know that something will happen, that God will do something much later. Jesus says, no, I am. This is who I am. Do you not know who I am? This is me. I am the resurrection. What a word. Resurrection. A big, massive word that we tend to make too small. Martha made it too small. Oh, yes, yes, at the end, at the end, Lord, at the end. In the last days, oh, yes. Oh, no, says Jesus, you have misunderstood, you have diminished my power. You have failed to understand who I am. You failed to understand who you are. For think of what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the resurrection. Resurrection, we know what that means. That means that someone who has died will rise again. That someone who has fallen under the the burden, under the curse of sin, 
will stand up, their heart will beat again, their mind will work again, their lungs will fill with air again, that Lazarus in a few moments will step out of the tomb wrapped in the grave clothes and he will live again. That's what resurrection means, right? To come out of death. And that's certainly true. Our problem is we make death too small. We make death way too small. We think death is this thing that happens when your heart stops beating. We think death is a biological event. We think death, we think death is a physical reality, not a spiritual one. That's what our world tells us. That's what our evolutionary scientists tell us. That's what other religions tell us. That, that death is the a freeing of the soul from the prison house of the body. That it is a necessary development in the ascension of life. That you need to die in order that others may live. That's what evolution teaches. We need to get out of the way so that better versions of us can take our place and the process of evolution can continue. Evolution is this perfectly natural, perfectly understandable, perfectly necessary, perfectly good reality. And then they look around at the world in which they live, even evolutionists do, and they wonder why everyone is so cruel and why everyone is so careless, why not everyone believes in evolution. How can you be so dumb? What's wrong with you? Even evolutionists know that there is something wrong with man. Everyone knows that there's something wrong with man, that there is a darkness in his heart, that there is a cruelty in his spirit that can stun us, that there is a carelessness, a pride, there is a foolishness that we cannot undo, that we cannot change, that grips our minds and our hearts, our loved ones, that we desperately want to have see the glory of God in Jesus Christ and we can't open their eyes or soften their hearts or make their minds illuminated. There is a power bigger and more sustaining than we can ever overcome. And we forget then, we forget then why that is. We forget why Lazarus died. Oh, maybe he, we don't know exactly what disease led to Lazarus' passing. Maybe he was the leper of the parable. Maybe it was a heart matter. Maybe it was an accident. We don't know why. Why did Lazarus die? We know that he had an illness. How did he get sick? We don't know. What disease was it? We don't know. If we knew, then maybe we could overcome it. Then maybe we could develop a vaccine for it. Then maybe we could find a treatment that would overcome it. Maybe then we could have saved his life. And maybe that's what we need to do is learn from Lazarus' death so that we can prevent them. If no one has to suffer from this again, then it will all be worth it, we tell ourselves. Because we think the problem of death is small. Because we think that the issue of sin is small. And we forget that Lazarus got a disease. Lazarus suffered death. Not because he 
ate the wrong food because he was in the wrong place or got stung by the wrong beast, the animal, the mosquito, not because his body experienced a particular response to something. Lazarus died because a long time ago a man ate a fruit. A man who was life and in whom was life, who was life itself the fountainhead of all of life, out of which has flowed from that day all of us. We are all his sons and daughters. He is the source, the beginning, the head of the stream, the fountain of our existence. We draw our existence from him. And that life chose death said to God, no, not, no, I will not obey you. I will not walk in your way. I will rebel against you and I will do war against you. I will accept the terms that you have laid down when you said the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. I'm willing to bet you're not going to kill me. I think I can overcome you. And so Adam ate and poisoned the fountain ruined the stream, made foul life, brought death. So that he no longer was the source of life, but now the source of death. From him flowed sin and rebellion and rejection, disease and death. From him flowed hatred into Cain's heart that killed Abel, the, the wars that followed, the, the, the abuse that, that results from Adam into this world flowed a darkness that has blanketed it ever since. So that grave upon grave upon grave has been laid because death has come by one man, says Paul. Death entered this world and came into all men. And here we are, here we are in this broken world, burdened by the consequence of sin, because one man was death. Now, how do you overcome that? What antibiotic do you give for that? How do you reach back into the mists of time and alter the stream that flows into your life? Into your life so that you're angry, so that you're proud, so that you're unkind, so that you're thoughtless, rebellious, so that you're sinful. How do you reach back into time to change the course of your, of your children's, of your friends, of your world's history? The world is gripped by sin for it flows from the very beginning of time. How do you fix it? We experience the effects of it and we work very hard at fixing the effects. We create laws to prevent people from doing the worst kinds of things. We create prisons to ensure that the worst kinds of people are separated from society. We develop technologies that address the problems of illness. We try to deal with every one of the symptoms of this overflowing darkness, but we can never overcome the darkness. 
That's Martha's problem. She doesn't get how desperately deep into darkness she is. Or her brother is. You could have prevented him from dying, Jesus. Yes, he could have. Temporarily. Jesus could have temporarily prevented Lazarus from dying. He could have eliminated this symptom. He could have prevented this moment of grief. But grief would have come eventually. Lazarus would eventually die as Martha has, as Mary has, as all of the people of that day have, as all of us will. We deal with symptoms, but we don't deal with causes Jesus deals with causes and then deals with symptoms. Jesus says, I haven't come to temporarily bless you, Mary I, or Martha. I haven't come to temporarily lift the curse. I am the resurrection. I am in the flesh, in my body created to nail to a tree that the debt of sin may be paid, that the life that flows from Adam, the death that flows from Adam, may be defeated. And new life, resurrection life, life that is free from sin, life that is free from death, life that is free from the grip of the rebellion that lives in our hearts against God, that that may be defeated, that this world may be changed, that light might come, that life might come today, not tomorrow, not thousands of years from now, today, in this moment, in your life, in your heart, Martha. I've come to save you to get you out of death, you out of sin, you out of the grip. You think Lazarus has it so bad. This is everyone's problem. I've come to solve that. To solve the cruelty, to solve the selfishness, to solve the pain, to solve the abuse, to solve the war, to solve the anger. I'm the resurrection, says Jesus. I'm the resurrection. And the life. Now, today, for I am the crucified and resurrected Lord. I am the defeater of sin and the bringer of life. I am the resurrection, says Jesus. Martha, like all of us, was way too narrow in her vision. Martha, like all of us, complained about the symptom and not the cause. We go, Lord, why do you have to let me suffer this way? To which God could say, why did you choose to rebel against me? But he doesn't. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he brings power into our lives. Power by faith. As he goes on to say, Jesus says something that at least on the surface of it sounds contradictory. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Go Wait a second. Though he die, he shall never die? What are you saying, Jesus? 
he shall live, and everyone who lives, what's going on? What is Jesus saying? Well, let's note at first the initial call to faith, for Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Life flows from me. Even as death flows from Adam, life flows from me. That ought to encourage all of our hearts. But how do we benefit from that? We know how we experience Adam's curse. We are his children. We are the branches of his vine. We are the people of his family. We are the parts of his body. We are united to Adam instinctively. Basically, ordinarily. But how do we get united to Jesus? Now we we find ourselves challenged. How are we united to Jesus? How does this life then flow through us? How does this resurrection power that gives us liberty over sin and death flow into our existence? We who struggle with these things. Jesus tells us, whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You hear it, believe, 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 Jesus says. Martha, you must believe in me. For it is by faith that we are united to Christ. It is by faith that like branches engrafted into the vine, the life of the vine flows into us. It is like the body, like the heart that beats so that the fingers and the toes all receive their blood. It is like that, that we are united and must be united to Christ through faith. Faith unites us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. But what does that mean, faith? What do we mean by belief? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? Does it mean to believe that he existed? to believe some truths about him? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Here's the great challenge, isn't it? The great challenge of faith is that faith surrenders all to this Savior. That, That faith says, I am utterly without hope. You are my only hope. We don't mind saying, I don't have a lot of hope, and you're a lot of my hope. Just like my life is, just like my spouse is, just like my children are, just like my business is, just like my country is. But faith requires that we say, I have no hope, and you're my only hope. That's a challenging faith to confess. Faith says, in myself I can do no good. Faith says that only in you do I have strength and hope and ability to overcome We don't always think that, particularly in a culture like ours, Dutch Reformed, Dutch Calvinist work ethic. We can do it. We can overcome. Just try harder. He says, I can't. No matter how hard I try, it's not enough. Only Christ is enough in me. Faith surrenders all. Faith embraces only. Faith acknowledges need and identifies blessing and knows that in Jesus, with absolute certainty, there is life. For he is the Son of God incarnate. He is the crucified for our sins ones, the resurrected from the dead ones. 
These sorts of things our world dismisses. How can you believe in such folly that a man rose from the dead three days after he died, that he even existed? There's no historical evidence. You're fools. And sometimes as a result, what we do is we redefine belief. We redefine faith, and faith no longer becomes our trusting in Jesus. It becomes our trusting ourselves, that Jesus exists. Faith becomes this close your eyes and hope it's true business, this blind leap business, this, well, I can't prove it, but I think it's true business. That is not the faith of the Bible. That is not, that's the faith the world thinks we have. That is not the faith that is called for here. The faith that is called for here is to see Jesus and to see him in all of his glory and to say, yes, that's the one. Him I trust. I know who he is, the Son of God incarnate, died on the cross and risen from the dead, and I trust him. I trust him in all of life, and I trust him in death. Though he die, yet he shall live. We can't see beyond the curtain of death. But we hear Jesus say, Those who rest in me will live. That is a profoundly challenging word. As we face our end, as we look to our mortality, as we find ourselves upon the deathbed, as we stand there, then we find ourselves wondering, how do we know? How do we know? You know that people struggle with that because you go to their funerals and you hear about how great they are. And people can be great. That's not untrue. But that's the hope we so often have. This person was so wonderful. They must be saved. But the truth is, that's not our hope at all. It's not how wonderful our dearly departed is that matters. It's how wonderful our Lord is that matters, and we trust Him. We can't see our loved one, but we trust this Word. We trust this Savior. We believe this Lord. He says they live. We don't know that by empirical evidence, but we know that He is faithful to His Word. Indeed, we experience that daily, don't we? For everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is saying that eternal life begins now. Not in the physical body, which is dying, but in the spiritual reality, in the regenerate heart, in the new life that dwells within those who believe, who are given victory over sin and death. We begin to experience new life today in our putting to death the old nature and bringing to life the new, in our humility, in our penitence, in our worship, in our commitment to living for the Lord, new life bubbles forth from us and eternal life begins already now so that we never die. Oh, our bodies go to the grave, but our soul immediately goes to the Lord. In heaven we never die. Because Jesus Christ is King, because Jesus Christ is Lord, because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life.
What a profound comfort it is then to know this Jesus. He sits before us in this table and invites us now into this fellowship. He says, this is who I give to you. This is what I give to you. I give you my body and my blood, my living body and my living blood, for Jesus lives. And in this body and in this blood is life itself, life for you eternally, but life for you right now. For in this body and blood is victory over today, today's sin, today's darkness, today's rebellion. Jesus says, come, experience life-renewing power. You say, wait, that's a lot to put on a piece of bread and a bit of wine. But that's what Jesus says. That's who Jesus is. We come to commune with Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And now we are called to answer the question that the Lord poses to Martha. Do you believe this? Here is life itself. For here is Jesus offered to you in his body and blood. Do you believe this? Do you need this? Do you long for this? Do you rejoice in this? Do you believe Jesus? Let's ask him for help in that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do too often diminish our problem and diminish your solution. Too often, Jesus is for us merely one who causes us to not have to face the consequences, the symptoms of this fallen world. But Lord, we thank and praise you that you have done something more than just solve our symptoms, that you have solved the very root cause of our sin, so that we become and experience more and more by your grace, freedom from the claim of sin, from the darkness of sin. And so help us, Lord, to come to this table today with this also in mind that we come to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, and help us to believe in this Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Turn with me in your forms and prayers books to Celebration for the Lord's Supper. We're going to use short form number two. Let me just note, I failed to mention in prayer, I saw Kara leave and uh, was reminded that she, um, well, her mother has returned home from hospital after many, many months, and we're so thankful for that. We'll pray about that this afternoon, but I did want to at least note it and acknowledge it, um, that we want to thank the Lord for that grace and for that mercy. Short form number two, we're going to read page 53 in our forms and prayers books. Brothers and sisters, you who desire to come to, hold, to the holy communion of the body and blood of our Savior must consider how the Apostle Paul exhorts us diligently to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For as the benefit of this sacred meal is great if we receive the sacrament with a penitent heart and lively faith, 
so is the danger great if we receive it in an unworthy manner. For then we are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We eat and drink to our own judgment, and we kindle God's wrath against us. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged by the Lord. Therefore, truly repent of your sins, place a lively and steadfast faith in Jesus Christ our Savior, and live in love with all people, so that you will be worthy partakers of this holy sacrament. Above all things, you must give most humble and sincere thanks to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the redemption of the world by the passion and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give thanks that he who is God became man. Give thanks that the Son humbled himself to death upon the cross for us, miserable sinners. Give thanks that we who walk in this dark world and in the shadow of death have been made the children